welcome to Recast, presented by the Baptist Union of Scotland. Each episode will look at a key issue of mission or discipleship for church leaders in Scotland. We will be bringing you key voices, practical insights and unique stories, all focused on the church in Scotland. Welcome to the Recast. My name is Glenn. Uh, great. Thank you for downloading this episode. Uh, I am here once again with my friend Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Glenn. Uh, we are doing this short series looking at some of the talks and seminars from Canopy Online. And Lisa, what do we have in store with this episode? So uh, this one is called Key Moments in Baptist History, and uh, it's really interesting, actually, and and quite inspiring. Uh, so uh, our seminar is with Ian Birch, with Lena Toth, and with Alistair Black, um, who are all talking about some key moments in Baptist history. So, yeah. Great. And it's hosted by our friend Andrew Clark. So Excellent. hope you all enjoy it, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Um, to um, to to you, Lena. If you could just introduce things from the outset, that would be great. Thank you. Sure. We seem to have lost Ian. Hopefully, he will reappear soon. But let me start by saying something like denominational identity doesn't necessarily feature large in everyone's church affiliation these days. But of course, Baptists have a proud tradition and an inspiring story, which is worth telling. And that is what we've been asked to do today. Baptist beginnings go back to the early uh, 1600s, the days of Shakespeare and Guy Fawkes. Uh, James VI of Scotland had become James I of England, and the religious upheaval launched in the Reformation was in full flow. It is impossible to tell the story of the Baptists in 45 or even less minutes, which we have this morning. So instead, we would like to introduce you to several individuals who made an outstanding contribution to the cause of the gospel and in one way or another help to define what it means to be a Baptist. And we start in 1600s with someone named Thomas Helwys. Born in 1550 into a wealthy Nottinghamshire family, his parents were the owners of Broxtow Hall. Thomas was educated to become a lawyer at the large and fashionable institution of Gray's Inn in London, with a view of him running the family estate. But instead, his life was destined to take an altogether different turn. After graduating, Thomas returned to Broxtow Hall and married, and there he came into contact with Puritans, who were seeking to reform the Anglican Church, which was regarded as formal and Catholic in too many of its ways, as a result of his friendship with Richard Bennard, vicar of Worksop. Broxtow Hall soon became a meeting place for like-minded Puritan sympathizers, and services and teaching meetings were well attended by local people. So soon, Thomas became more spiritually alive and adopted spirit, uh, separatist convictions, which meant a withdrawal from his local parish church, a step outside of the law. 
in 1600s, Helwys met the man who would change the course of his life, and his name was John Smythe, a former Church of England clergyman who had resigned his ministry for Puritan reasons and was serving a group of Congregationalists in Gainsborough in Lincolnshire. This group became so large that it was an easy target for persecution. And so it split into two groups with Smythe and Helwys leading the Gainsborough congregation. And in 1607, the threat of persecution forced, forced these believers to flee just ahead of their would-be captors to the safe haven of Holland. Helwys using his wealth to fund the transport and accommodation on Dutch soil. In Amsterdam, Smythe and Helvis reflected on the New Testament pattern of the church and came to a startling conviction about baptism being on confession of sins, repentance, and faith in Christ. Smythe now took the extraordinary step of baptizing himself with a bowl of water, then baptizing Helvis, and after this, the two baptized the rest of the followers. And this is regarded as the first English Baptist church, although it was, of course, founded on Dutch soil. But doubt soon crept into the mind of John Smythe about his act of self-baptism, and he became convic convinced he should have asked a Mennonite group he had met in Amsterdam to baptize him instead. And this conviction led to a dispute between himself and Helvis, who thought Smythe was compromising on the rejection of apostolic succession of the sacraments. So in this agreement, Smythe and Helvis now parted company. And so having founded the first Baptist church, they now had the first church split as Helvis excommunicated Smythe for the, from the majority congregation. And for two years, the congregations met separately. But in 1612, Helvis began to believe he should return to his homeland to share the gospel with his countrymen, wherever the cost. So he came home and founded the first Baptist church on English soil in Spitterfields, at that time just outside of the boundary of London. In 1611, Helvis wrote a work that has become one of the most significant religious writings of Baptist and indeed English political history, The Mystery of Iniquity which is a plea for religious liberty, the first claim for freedom of worship to be published in the English language, which is remarkable, really, because it appealed for liberty not only for Christian separatists, but for Jews, Muslims, and people of all faiths. Helvis also denied that the king had any rights over the consciousness of his subjects, which belonged to God alone. Helvis sent his book to King James, thinking that the Scottish king would approve his ideas and realize Baptists were no threat to the country. But the king was deeply displeased with Helvis and had him put in jail, where the brutal conditions reduced him to a skeleton, and he died in captivity around 1615. So Helvis was gone, but his courage, his convictions, and call for religious liberty lived on and they form a core principle of Baptist faith, that freedom of conscience and freedom of religion is an inalienable right, and coercion in matters of faith is to be rejected and opposed.
Well, good morning. Uh, I'm going to look at John Bunyan. I'm going to give you a light version on this because uh, basically we haven't got time to do the, the full thing. But uh, John Bunyan was a 17th century English Baptist preacher and writer who's best known for his allegorical novel, The Pilgrim's Progress. He was born in 1628 in Elstow, Bedfordshire, England, and spent much of his life in prison for preaching without a license. Bunyan was a devout Christian who believed that the Bible was the only source of religious authority and held to a congregational form of church government. He strongly emphasized justification by faith alone. Bunyan's ideas were shaped by his experience as a persecuted Christian in England. He believed that the Church of England had been corrupted and that true Christians should separate themselves from it. In the 17th century, religious toleration was hard to find, even amongst Baptists. Baptist believer, Baptist believed believers' baptism was an ordinance, a non-negotiable command given to every believer. Those who refused to be baptized as a profession of faith were violating not only the command of Scripture, but Christ himself. They needed to repent or be excommunicated and excluded from the true Church of Christ. No one who has not undergone believer's baptism could be considered part of the church or even possibly a Christian. However, Bunyan resisted this thinking, partly because he was leading a fellowship where not everyone was baptized as a believer. He argued the one baptism of Ephesians 4 is baptism in the spirit and not baptism in water. Therefore, the church is constituted by those who have had an experience of the spirit. Our unity is based on an encounter with Jesus, not undergoing water baptism, although water baptism should be the outworking of baptism in the spirit. This thought was revolutionary because it inferred Baptist churches are not about coming together around a shared set of propositional beliefs. It's principally not about a shared creed, but a shared encounter of the spirit. This Baptist, of, Baptist vision of the church is very distinct from our Presbyterian cousins. It means Baptists can have a radically different views, but still enjoy unity because our unity is not based primarily on shared proposition. However, however Bunyan's ideas were not universally accepted during his lifetime. He faced persecution from both the Church of England and other dissenting groups who disagreed with him. Yet his ideas would go on to have a profound impact on English society and on Baptist theology more broadly. He put at the heart of the question of Baptist identity, are we just Presbyterians who don't practice infant baptism or are we something distinct? Well, the next person we're going to look is Andrew Fuller. Born to farmers in Cambridgeshire in 1754, his story is about the influence on the revival movement amongst Calvinistic Baptists in the late 18th century. This was a period when the strict Calvinist theology of figures like John uh, Gill and John Bryan caused Baptists to be inward-looking, anti-evangelical, and numerically in a spiral of decline. Andrew was converted and baptized at 16 and within a year was preaching and assisting in the pastoral work at the Baptist Church at Soham in Cambridgeshire, now famous for the murder of two children, alongside the minister, Mr. Eve. 
When the minister left, owing to a fierce theological dispute with the church, Andrew, at that time aged 20, took up the reins until he was called to the pastorate at Kettering in Northamptonshire. Here in his new church, theological tensions between the hyper-Calvinist congregation and their more moderate pastor were inevitable, especially owing to Fuller's open invitations to sinners to believe in the gospel. Fuller's thinking at this time is captured in the little in the title of the book he wrote to express his views, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation, The Duty of Sinners to Believe in Jesus Christ. And there he wrote, I believe it is the duty of every minister of Christ plainly and faithfully to preach the gospel to all who will hear it. And it is the duty of men to love the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him for salvation, though they do not. I therefore believe free and solemn addresses, invitations, calls and warnings to them to be not only consistent, but directly adapted as means in the hand of the Spirit of God to bring them to Christ. So why are we talking about this man? Well, we are talking about this man because Andrew Fuller took up the fight with those in his age who believed it wrong to preach the gospel to the unsaved in case someone who was not elect should be converted and the purposes of God be frustrated. In defending his views, he wrote, had matters gone on but a few years, the Baptists would have become a perfect dunghill in society. In Kettering, Fuller began to meet with other ministers to discuss the religious demise of the nation, saying there was scarcely anything worthy of the name of religion left upon the earth. But Fuller, John Sutcliffe, John Ryland, and an up-and-coming young minister from the Northamptonshire Association began to meet for prayer for revival. And so they lit a fire in the heart of William Carey that would have a long and wide-ranging impact we support today in the work of what they founded as the Particular Baptist Missionary Society. And as we know it today, Baptist World Mission. Historians now comment that the 13 men that rediscovered the Great Commission of Jesus at that time launched a new era in Protestant missions. They were challenging the whole Church of Christ in their time, and Carey readily acknowledged the debt he owed in his call to the theological courage and teaching of Andrew Fuller. From Fuller, he drew the inescapable inference that if it is the duty of all men to repent and believe the gospel, it is the duty of those entrusted with it to carry it into all the world. When William Carey set sail for India with his wife Dorothy and their children, um, which happened in 1793, Andrew Fuller volunteered to be the secretary of the Missionary Society, which would raise support and prayer back home to uphold Carey in the mission field, a position he kept till the day of his death. He traveled the country raising funds for the mission, committed to the principle of raising a pound for every mile covered. Many times he left churches where he had pleaded for support only to hide down a side lane away from the public gaze and apparently to weep because of the indifference he met among Baptist congregations. A humble man, self-taught, clever but unassuming about 
Him, it was said, when he passed away, Fuller lived and died a martyr to the mission. So the Baptist story would not be complete without some mention also of Baptist world mission. And we have chosen to do that through the work of Andrew Fuller. Less known than William Carey, he's equally, if not more significant, in the foundation of a missionary movement that defines one crucial strand of the Baptist tradition. Okay, we're going to consider how that mission influence shaped Scotland. Uh, the Hal through the Haldane brothers. The Haldane brothers, Robert and James, were Scottish evangelists who played a significant role in the religious revival of the late 18th century and early 19th centuries. Sorry. This is a... Um, they were instrumental in establishing the Society for Propagating the Gospel at Home in 1797. This society was founded with the aim of spreading the gospel to the poor and uneducated people of Scotland, who were often neglected by the established churches. Part of a family dynasty from Glen Eagles in Strathairn, Robert and James Haldane were members of the Scottish aristocracy. Robert was born in 1764 in London and James four years later in Dundee. Yet before Robert's 14th birthday, he had lost both his father and mother, sister and maternal grandmother, who had ad adopted the two boys. At 16, he joined the Royal Navy, where he served for three years in a war against France, 1780 to 83. Having left the Navy, he married and took up residence in Earthy Castle, now Stirling University, and did what Scottish aristocracy did, toured Europe, and remodeled the house and gardens. Meanwhile, James, as the younger brother, followed a career in the Merchant Navy with the East India Company, sailing to India and China from Portsmouth. Through this South Coast connection, James came into the orbit of a family friend, a dissenting Scottish churchman called David Bogue. He was an ardent evangelical and led a church in Hampshire. In 1791, Bogue set up a seminary for training pastors, which facilitated the birth of the London Missionary Society in 1795. James was deeply influenced by Bogue and a new wife called Mary, who was very pious. Leaving the Navy in 1793, two years later, while living in Scotland, James had a conversion experience, which, followed quickly, which was followed quickly by his brother, Robert. Their conversion represented the birth of what we call evangelical Calvinism in Scotland. Traditionally, Presbyterianism taught faith was conveyed without any necessary human mediation, and it was ill-advised to preach to the unelect. However, evangelical Calvinism, based on a reading of Romans 10, believed preaching mediated the calling of God. Everyone was to be called to repentance through preaching, and the elect would respond. However, given the changing social realities with the French Revolution and the religious pluralism of the New World, this task had taken on an added urgency. The Haldane brothers appreciated this urgency and offered to sell the family estate to found missionary work in India in partnership with the East India Company. The offer was declined, but in 1797, the estate was sold releasing more than 100 million in today's money, and the Society for Propagating the Gospel at Home set up in Edinburgh. 
Over the next 10 years, over 300 itinerant lay evangelists were trained in preaching and more than 80 churches established in Ireland and Scotland, mainly through conversion growth. Large preaching centres called tabernacles, based on George Whitfield's model down south, were established in all the growing urban centres of Glasgow, Edinburgh, Perth and Dundee, as well as up north in places like Thurso, Elgin and Wick. In 1799, James became the pastor of the largest of these churches in Edinburgh, a two to three thousand seater auditorium on the south of the Playhouse at the top of Leith Walk. At the heart of this movement was the Haldanes brothers' belief that it was necessary to reach out to those who were being, weren't being reached by traditional means and to work on the fringes of Scottish society, particularly in the Highlands and Islands. The itinerant and non-denominational nature of this outreach was perceived as channeling the spirit of revolt against the establishment. Inevitably, the movement incurred the wrath of the Church of Scotland, who outlawed itinerant preaching. But this just seemed to further fuel the spirit of revolution. In 1808, Robert and James accepted the principle of believers' baptism, which divided the movement. The vast tabernacle church in Edinburgh, led by James Split, although he continued as its pastor for the next 40 years, it never really recovered believers' baptism being just too far outside the religious mainstream for most. Similarly, while a few of the other churches did become Baptist chapels, many opted for congregationalism. Robert went on to become a religious writer and theologian who authored several works. After a European tour in 1850, which took him to Geneva to teach, he authored a famous commentary on Romans, on returning home, he continued to have an itinerant preaching ministry and was involved in a series of controversies centered on the inspiration of scripture. Although the Haldane brothers are often perceived as a seminal influence in the fledging Scottish Baptist movement, their true influence was much greater. Their approach to evangelism was unique in that they emphasized preaching to those who were not members of established churches. This non-denominational approach not only helped establish independent churches as across Scotland, it contributed significantly to the revival of Scottish religion in the 19th century. The two successors of the Haldane brothers are the evangelical Calvinists of the Church of Scotland, the Thomas Chalmers, Andrew Bonners and Robert Murray McShanes, who carried the Haldane evangelical ethos and heart for the marginalised to the centre of the Scottish Church and society. Now we turn another page of our history book and look a little bit further afield at Europe. It is quite intriguing why, even though Baptists trace their beginnings to Amsterdam and then quickly established themselves both in Britain and America, on the continent of Europe, there would be no Baptist groups that we know of for another two centuries. They finally appear there in the 19th century amidst huge political, social and economic changes. We don't have time to delve into those changes except to note one of them. Travel and migration became big. People were now traveling with much greater ease and as economic conditions were a bit dicey in many places, just a bit like today perhaps, many people would be visiting other countries to earn their living there, at least for a while. So a cabinet maker or a sawmill worker would arrive to a place where they'd encounter Baptists and having found a living faith among them there, they would often be sent home as missionaries where they'd start holding services and distributing Christian literature. 
And that is how the Baptist fire suddenly got lit in Europe. One person who became key to much of this is Johann Gerhard Onken. He was born in a Lutheran family in Germany, but his early youth was actually spent as a merchant apprentice in Scotland and England. And here he encountered various Christian groups and also experienced personal conversion. Even after he returned home to a German city of Hamburg to lead an English Reformed church, he regularly corresponded with Robert Holtain and eventually started to seek believers' baptism for himself and the group he led. But how does one get baptized when there's no one lo locally to baptize you? Well, in contrast to Smithen Helvis, in Onken's case, God sent Professor Barnas Sears, an American Baptist minister who was visiting Germany on his sabbatical. And Sears baptized Onken and six other people in the River Elbe. The next day, they formally founded the first German Baptist church, which then became the center of Baptist mission work in Europe. For Onken, this was the beginning of a life of extensive missionary travels throughout Europe. He was very much a Baptist Apostle Paul of sorts of the 19th century. His famous motto was every Baptist a missionary, or jeder Baptist ein Missionar in German. And it really encapsulates the kind of Baptist identity that he championed. There were not many countries in Europe that he did not visit. Onken also started a printing business for the publication of theological literature and later also founded a seminary. In much of Europe, Baptist beginnings can be linked in one way or another to the activity of Onken and his German-speaking Baptists. These Baptists were often treated as a serious threat to the civil authorities and the state church, and so often encountered opposition, at times really even persecution. Onken himself was imprisoned more than once, and the Hamburg Baptist Church had to face fierce hostility, although things changed a great deal after the Great Fire of Hamburg, when more than one third of the city's population found themselves homeless. And Otkin's congregation got involved in extensive relief work, and that really changed the way they were viewed, both by the general population and the authorities. An almost identical development would take place just a few years later in Memel, the town in which I was born, now Lithuania. That town also had a great city fire, which also left most school and church buildings destroyed and many people homeless. And Mamel Baptists, who were one of Onken's missionary partner churches, opened their doors to a day school, a Lutheran community, homeless people. To this day, for us Baptists, humanitarian work is one of the most powerful ways we can share our faith. You might wonder if Onken is some kind of a superhero. And the answer is no one really is a superhero. One of the problematic sides of Onken was his rather authoritarian leadership and an expectation that all the churches he helped to found would submit to the hierarchy of the mother church in Hamburg. His co-workers argued otherwise. They said churches were interdependent, but they could discern the mind of Christ each in their local context. Later years would mostly demonstrate the wisdom of Onken's colleagues and the autonomy of the local church would continue to be a common Baptist 
feature. Warts and all, Onkins was a great life and one enabled by many helpers and supporters. Although his significant partners were, or among his significant partners, were British and American mission organizations, including the Scottish Bible Society. They played a big role in financially supporting Onken and many other men and women who became traveling distributors of Bibles and Christian literature. These people would find groups meeting to read the Bible, often in secret, and would connect them to other Bible readers and to Baptists elsewhere. And that is yet another fascinating feature of the Baptist movement, our international intercultural nature. Alone, we can achieve something, but working together, we can enable amazing transformations, just as the story of Onken demonstrates. Every Baptist is called to be God's missionary, and working together, Baptists can become part of something truly remarkable. Thanks, thanks, Lena, for uh, introducing us to somebody on the international stage. And having thought about somebody who was a great Baptist in Europe, I want to introduce you to a sister from the United States whose name was Lottie Moon, who lived from 1840 to 1912, 19, so it brings us into the 20th century. So Moon was a Southern Baptist missionary whose remarkable life was spent working for the salvation of Chinese people. She was born into a wealthy and privileged family, and though her parents were devout and church-going, Lottie initially didn't share that faith in the same way and was of a very independent mind. In fact, her friends knew her as a sceptic in religious matters. She was always questioning and doubting everything that she was taught. But at 18 years of age, maybe because of the prayers of her parents and others, we don't know for sure, but her conscience began to be deeply troubled and she, she had many anxious thoughts, particularly about death and eternity and how it would be to stand before God as somebody who was not a believer. And over a period of time, uh, her heart was changed and she threw herself into prayer and eventually asked the, the minister of the church the family attended for baptism. As a young woman, she went to college in Albemarle where she graduated with an MA recognized as an outstanding student. And her intention was to go into school teaching and when she finished college, for a time, she did go into teachings and she taught in a female academy run by First Baptist Church, Kentucky, and committed to learning the ways of the Baptist tradition. Becoming deeply interested in, in, in Baptist things, she wrote letters to, her, to a religious newspaper praising the deaconess system, which ministered to the poor and the suffering, established Sunday schools, sewing schools, site schools, and classes for mothers. Now, her early concern and interest in mission started when her mother died. And as a tribute to her mother's faith, Lottie committed to support a student on the mission field in China. And she put money to a church that had been planted by the Southern Mission Board in Rome. Her, her interest, however, became intensified in 1872 when her younger sister Edmonia 
was accepted by the Missionary Society of the First Baptist Church, Richmond, Virginia, to go to Teng Chow, which is modern Peng Lai. This inspired Lottie to inquire herself about going to China. And then to add to the pressure uh, on her intentions about this, her sister pleaded with her to come and join the work, which was of overwhelming magnitude. So on the 7th of July, 1873, she was appointed as a missionary to China. And three months later, she arrived in Shanghai, where for the next 40 years, she would live and work in the Shantung province in order to spread the gospel. Many back home in the United States felt that such a talented woman was wasted in China. But in her missionary work, she was energetic and committed to sharing the gospel and believed that that was absolutely where God intended her to be. She and her sister went house to house in evangelistic work and where, and where they met kind receptions. But the kindness of the people who welcomed them was not enough for Lottie. They were discouraged as they did not see this as openness to the Christian message, which is what they really desired. Instinctively, as somebody who was trained as a teacher, she welcomed schoolboys into her home to instruct them in the catechism, which they learned by heart. After some time, Lottie's sister returned home to America due to health problems, and Lottie was left to continue the work that they had started. Her estimate of what she was about is captured in a letter which she wrote to other women among the Southern Baptists. For women, she wrote, foreign missions open a new and enlarged sphere of labour and furnish opportunities for good, which angels might almost envy. Could a Christian woman possibly desire higher honour than to be permitted to go from house to house and tell of a saviour to those who have ever, never heard his name? A bit like uh, Onken, lest we think of women such as Lottie Moon as heroes. There was sadness in her life over a love affair that she had with a theologian called Crawford, Crawford Toy, uh, who, you know, invites the obvious comment that he might have been her toy boy, but it wasn't to be. However, his theological opinions made him unsuited for the mission field. And when someone asked her later in life if she had ever had a love affair, she replied, Yes, she certainly had. But God had first claim on my life. And since the two conflicted, there could be no question about the result. So she made her decisions, though there was sadness all through her life that that had not worked out. From the beginning of her missionary life, Lottie and a missionary friend began to make visits into the countryside to undertake pioneer work, challenging villagers about the folly and the sin of idol worship. The intensity of this work increasingly caused her to be frustrated with the lack of interest in foreign mission among women back home. And in one of her letters, she wrote to those she corresponded with saying, how many among our women, alas, alas, who imagine that because Jesus paid it all, they need to pay nothing forgetting that the prime object of their salvation was that they should follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ in bringing back a lost world to God. As the years passed, Lottie became more and more identified with the Chinese people, their culture, 
and their language. And by 1890, she could speak of herself as one of the natives. She had become in all things Chinese, so that by any means, she might win some for Christ. Conversions and baptisms did result from her work and believers were gathered into house churches, though they often lamented that no pastors could be found to lead and care for them. Increasingly, she devoted herself to working with women and pleaded with the Home Mission Board in America to send more women to help with the work, especially when she re relocated to Pingtu in 1885. Lottie's legacy was the pioneering missionary example that she set. And as a gifted writer, the letters that she sent home, which enthralled and inspired others with tales of missionary life. When the Boxer Uprising came around 1900, Lottie was evacuated to, to Japan for her safety, but not before encouraging indigenous Chinese Christians to be strong under persecution. That her work was not in vain, is evidenced by the fact that in the year of her death, one such believer, Pastor Lee of Sailing, baptised 500 people. So courageous, faithful, dedicated and committed to the people that she felt called to serve, Lottie Moon is a Baptist woman, pioneer missionary, that we are right to count among our saints. Well, women often remain hidden in the official histories, including Baptist histories. So it would be good for us to look at another amazing woman who influenced our Baptist life as we know it today. And also to say something about we as Baptists have wrestled with questions of women in ministry and indeed our interpretation of scripture. We'll take a British example, although sadly not a Scottish one. Here she is, Violet Hedger, one of the first British Baptist women whose call to ministry was publicly recognised. When Hedger was coming of age just after the First World War, many new opportunities for women were opening, but an ordained female Baptist minister was still unheard of and not something many were ready to imagine or accept. As for so many Baptist women before, and as for Lottie Moon, becoming a missionary was pretty much the only way to be allowed to serve in a speaking and leading capacity. So Hedger did seek to become a missionary and go to Africa, but even then finding a Baptist college which would accept her for training was a challenge. She was only 19, but her home church also gave commendation for her to enter theological studies. She always warmly remembered her own minister, Dr. Charles Brown, who, as she said, risked giving an unqualified approval and recommendation that a girl should be admitted to a Baptist theological college. So much of our Baptist history is due to the fact that some people have recognized a potential, a calling, God's hand upon someone who many did not find an acceptable choice. This often would involve a serious wrestling with scripture and arriving at a new understanding and appreciation of who God might choose for God's mission. So eventually Hedger was accepted as a student by Regent's Park College, the first woman to enter a British Baptist college to be trained for ordained ministry. 
And her years at the college were a tough gig, not the least because the school soon had a new principal who was not too happy at the idea of a female ministerial student and mostly refused to acknowledge her presence. He also refused to pay her examination fee, even though it was the custom of the college to cover it for its students. Many decades later, another principal of that same college, Professor Paul Fides, perhaps known to some of you, presented Violet Hedger with a framed check of five pounds covering her examination fees, symbolically apologizing and recognizing her trailblazing role. As you can perhaps imagine, she would continue to encounter rejection and disdain, but she did have a relatively long and varied ministry as a pastor of several Baptist churches. A good communicator, she preached not only in church buildings, but also on the radio, in pubs, clubs, and open air, particularly during the years of the Second World War. It was during this war that her manse was bombed, and Violet, a single woman, was discovered buried under the rubble, unconscious and suffering injuries that would result in permanent disabilities. In the decades between her college examination and the arrival of that check to symbolically cover her fees, so much has changed, not only for the Baptist college where she trained, but in so many Baptist churches as well. Our Baptist neighbors down south were one of the early denominations to recognize women as equally capable of being called by God to preaching and pastoral ministry. Of course, not all the churches have embraced women in ministry. The same would be true of Baptists worldwide. It has taken us much longer here in Scotland, and to this day, we only have a handful of female ministers. But the change across the Baptist churches over the last 100 years in this respect has been striking. So here's what Hedger wrote to her fellow Baptists, reflecting on her own ministry. And she wrote this in the midst of the Second World War. A newspaper placard asserted to me as I walked through Oxford Street that war gives woman her chance. If that be true, then it is tragic that only in this awful failure of man's control of the civilization he devised is a chance given to half a humanity. It should be the church gives woman her chance. Violet Hedger's story offers us an important lesson about how we as Baptists continue to read scripture. Rather than choosing the particular verses which confirm the opinions we already hold, Hedger's story highlights the fact that we can trust the Holy Spirit to lead us into new understandings and expanding horizons of mission and ministry. The Spirit can help us discern the call to ministry in those we least expect to be under such a call and be ready to then revise our views and imagine a different kind of a church, a different kind of a future. And so we have come to the end of our family album. There are so many hundreds of other people that we could have spoken about, but we try to say something that was representative at some of the key themes in our heritage. 
We've introduced you to seven people who in their life and work remind us of what is important to us in the Baptist story. We make no pr pretense that we alone have been faithful in holding to these con convictions, but in rehearsing them, we affirm our identity and the value of our tradition as Baptist people, as Baptist believers. Freedom of conscience, courage in adversity, commitment to the Great Commission and mission at home and overseas. The priority of the sovereign call of God and the gifting of the Spirit in the shape of ministry. There is so much for us to celebrate, and so we thank you for listening to us today.